Well, good morning. Is this on? There we go. Awesome. My name is Brian Lamb. I have the honor of serving here at Solid Rock as the pastor of Community and Missions. Uh, it's always a joy for me to be able to get this opportunity to uh, come together and open the word of God with you. Jason gets a break every once in a while, and they just kind of throw me up here for fun. And so we'll see how it goes, but I'm excited. And so we're going to continue in this series that we've been in for this spring called The Unstoppable Church, uh, just looking through the book of Acts. And so if you have a Bible or a tablet or your phone, uh, then you can open to Acts 15. That's where we'll be today. If you don't own a Bible, there's a black hardback Bible in the seat below you, and that's our gift to you. We want everybody to have a copy of God's Word. And so as you're turning there, I'm just going to kind of talk a little bit about what's going on here to kind of set us up. And so in Acts 15, we're going to read about the council uh, at Jerusalem where the early church is going to address a fundamental question of our faith. This question of whether Gentiles, those who are not born Jewish, like me and many of you, I would presume, um, have to first become Jewish through adherence to the law and through the physical act of circumcision in order to truly be a Christian and saved. And so that's what we're going to be talking about a lot today. And so this was a controversy that was between the, uh, the conservative Jewish Christians and then Paul and Barnabas, Peter, and James, which is quite the lineup. Like, I'm going to that conference if it's available. And so uh, this argument that we see here is really a, a major threat to the truth of the gospel and the unity of the early church. And that, yet it's still something that you and I we struggle with today the question, these questions that we're going to see here. Whether or not it's probably not circumcision, but it's the what circumcision represented, and so where we think we need Jesus plus something else to receive God's grace, and so we begin to add stuff beyond faith in God's grace to the gospel, where we try to control and we try to manage our morality and and rely on our ability to get things right in order to find freedom and to find hope. And, and really what's happening is we're creating ourselves as our own personal savior that in the end is going to fail us because we're going to mess up. We can't obtain the law. We can't uh, stand up to the requirements of it. To where we think that we have this mindset of, well, I need Jesus plus my good behavior. Or I need Jesus plus my church attendance. Or Jesus plus the right church lingo. Or Jesus plus whatever it is to gain God's approval. And in this, we're deserting and we're turning away from the true gospel and creating a different one. And the problem with that is that there is no other gospel. God's approval of us is, is only found as we place our faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus by the grace of God. That is the gospel. There is no other gospel or good news but that. I don't know about you, but I'm a traditionalist when it comes to certain holidays. Uh, like Thanksgiving, it needs to be a certain way. There needs to be certain things there or else it's not actually Thanksgiving. It's just some other holiday or some other day. And so if we don't have like some, some dressing and some, some turkey and some pie there, then it's just some weird day where we eat a bunch and take a nap. It's not Thanksgiving. And so one year, my family, they wanted to... Uh, they had this bright idea to uh, go out to eat for Thanksgiving or order in. And I can't remember which one it was because it was so crazy. It was dumb. But I basically told him, I said, look, we can't do that. Then it wouldn't be Thanksgiving. It'd be something else. 
And then another year, they had this other bright idea to, like, cook a roast beef or something. And roast beef's good, but what do you have at Thanksgiving? Turkey, turkey right. And so I was like, look, if there's not turkey, then I'm not going to be there. <laughs> and, and so the, the point of all of this, and, and that we need to see here in Acts 15 today as we go over this, is that if the gospel ever becomes anything else other than faith alone, in Christ alone, by the grace of God alone, then it is not the gospel because there is no other gospel than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. And so this is why our main concern here at Solid Rock is not what you wear, but it's the gospel. Now, of course, we want you to have some clothes on when you come in here. But that's not our main concern for you. It's the gospel. Our main concern for you is not even your behavior, which we should all be encouraging one another to pursue holiness because it's evidence of our faith in the gospel. But if we preach to you that you need to talk a certain way or you need to have this, this perfectly moral behavior to be a Christian, to have this righteousness that comes from ourselves rather than Christ, then we're not preaching the gospel to you. And so that's the point of Acts 15, that the, the, the gospel must be central in what informs everything we do in life. And we can, yeah, we can have other conversations. We can talk about other things, difficult things like suffering or marriage or children or race or forgiveness or money. But if we don't come to all of those issues in light of the gospel, then we're wasting our time because our only hope in this life is the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no other good news but Jesus. And so let's start in verse 1 of Acts 15. It says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. So we're going to stop right there. And so we can see here that there's some conservative Jewish brothers, believers in Christ from Judea, going to Antioch to teach the gospel. But what did they do? They added to the gospel. In verse 1, we see that it says there that they told them, unless, you be, unless you're circumcised, you cannot be a Christian. You cannot be saved. And circumcision was a part of the, the covenant that God made with Abraham. It's an outward marking on the body, but it's also a sign of belonging to God's people. And so it's tied to all those promises that are found in that Abrahamic covenant that the Jewish people held to. And so this doesn't sit well with Paul or Barnabas. As it says in verse 2, we see that they had no small dissension and debate with them. You know, being a parent now, this, that, that, whole, that brings a whole new meaning to me. Sometimes there's just no small debate and dissension with our kids. We can't let them win every time, guys. We can't. And, and so I, I know how Paul and Barnabas feel. Sometimes there's things we're just going to put our feet down and we're not, we're not going anywhere. 
And we can also see by reading the book of Galatians that Paul is very passionate about this topic of circumcision. Because, see, Paul recognized that forcing Gentiles to be circumcised for salvation is anti-gospel. It's anti-Jesus because then it becomes a, a, a faith, or sorry, then it becomes a salvation based off of works and not faith alone in Christ alone. And so this argument's being made in Antioch, a church that's primarily Gentiles, and it's creating some disunity in the church because, see, Gentiles felt like this was an unnecessary burden being placed on them. And, and rightly so, circumcision is not a pleasant procedure. But yet the Jewish leaders felt like that there was a burden being placed on them as well because they're going to have to have fellowship with these, these people who are doing things contrary to their way of life that has some intense historical roots to it. And so to settle this issue, the church decides to send Paul and Barnabas to the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem to answer this question of, do we need to add anything to the work of Jesus for salvation? Because these Jewish brothers are saying it's Jesus plus circumcision for salvation, and that doesn't line up. And so this is the first part of the, of the debate that we see in Acts 15. And so they go to Jerusalem and they begin to tell them of all the work that God's doing among the Gentiles, things that we've been reading about the past couple weeks. And then we see in verse 5 that there's, again, these conservative Jewish believers of the Pharisee party, and they're arguing just like those brothers were in Antioch. They're saying it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And so these brothers are not only agreeing with those from Judea and Antioch, but they're saying, no, we don't just need to circumcise them. We need them to obey the law of Moses on top of that, referring to the moral and the ceremonial law of Moses. And see, this is why Paul gets in a debate. This is why Paul gets so heated, because he knows that if we accept circumcision as a means of salvation, then we will be responsible for the whole law. Thus creating a gospel is dependent upon our ability to obey the law rather than a gospel dependent upon the work of Jesus. And so the law of Moses, it has the, the moral aspect of the law, the, the Ten Commandments. But these brothers were also talking about the ceremonial law, which is a very strict purity law that had cleanliness and dietary restrictions to it. Things like you had to, you had to wash a certain way and in a certain amount of time before you could eat, before you could worship. There's restrictions on what food was considered clean and unclean. There's an abstaining from, from uh, meat with blood on it. And, and so, as crazy as it sounds, these Jewish brothers would be very offended if Gentiles served some bacon for breakfast. Like, we're not having it. And so that's the, the, the dissension we see here. And so, so this second, there's a second part of the debate now, now that we see this. That if Gentiles don't have to become Jews through adherence to the law and circumcision, th then how are we supposed to have fellowship with them? Meaning the Gentiles view themselves as free from all these things, but the Jewish people think that this defiles you. So how are we ever supposed to agree on anything, much less have a meal together? Because we can't even decide what's for dinner, can we? And so this is the debate happening in Jerusalem. And so let's pick it up in verse 7. This is Peter. Love my boy Peter. He says, And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you 
that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. So Peter steps up to the plate. He's answering this this question concerning salvation. Do we need to add anything to it, or, or is it just faith? And so he basically says, no, we, we don't need to add anything to it. Faith alone is where we find salvation. And he gives two arguments. The first one we just read about, the second one we'll come back to. But in verses 7 through 9, he, he recalls his encounter with the Gentile Cornelius. In Acts 10, back in Acts 10, and, and how God made no distinction between Jew and Gentile, but gave them both the Holy Spirit and cleansed their hearts by what does it say at the end of verse 9? Anybody here? Faith. By faith. Works? Faith. He's saying both Jew and Gentile are saved by faith in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other way by which you can be saved. Peter's like, I didn't go to Cornelius' house, preach the gospel to him, and once he placed his faith in Jesus, be like, all right, man, well, now we've got to have this really kind of, it's kind of an uncomfortable, awkward situation. See, have you heard about circumcision? Just got to know where you're at on that, brother. And also, I forgot to tell you, you can't, you can't eat bacon anymore. And maybe you liked your ribeye medium rare, but now that thing's got to be well done and tough. And, and so, what we see here is that he's saying, I, I, didn't, I didn't say any of that. I simply preached Jesus to Cornelius. The Holy Spirit fell upon him, and by faith alone, in Jesus alone, Cornelius, the Gentile, was saved. He's saying, God did that. I didn't do that. God did that. We can't just come in here and undo what God's doing among the Gentiles. It doesn't work that way. And then, for his second argument, Peter reminds the brothers in attendance about their lack of ability to keep the law themselves and God's grace in Jesus. In verse 10 and 11, it says, Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. He said, are you really going to go that route? Are you really going to ask the Gentiles to do what you can't even do yourself? What your fathers could not do, which is to keep the law? See, Peter's showing us the truth of the law, that the law was given to us in order that we would see how messed up we are and how much we need Jesus. That if we base our salvation off of living in obedience to the law, and we find our right standing with God on our ability to be moral and to adhere to all these ceremonial laws, then we're going to find ourselves bound to shame and guilt because we will always fail at the law. We will always be thinking, have I ever done enough? Did I do it right? Was God pleased with me? We'll never be able to come to the standards of the law. And so this is why Peter refers to the law as a, as a yoke that no one's able to bear or carry. He's echoing the words of Jesus here that are found in Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 and 30, as Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, Jesus is the only answer. Because it is in him alone where we can find rest for our souls because he alone is our righteousness. He has fulfilled the requirements of the law on our behalf. And this is a monumental truth for us as believers that as we rest in the righteousness of Christ, this yoke of the law that was once burdensome and heavy now becomes light and easy. It is such a freeing thing to realize that you, you can rest in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That it's not Jesus plus your good behavior for salvation. It is simply Jesus. He has done everything that you could not do for yourself. And so Peter's showing them and us just how insane it is to operate outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ because of the demands of the law that will be there if you choose that route. I'll show us. I'm going to make this really easy for everybody in here. Anybody ever drive over the speed limit? All of us, right? All done. All guilty if we are left to our morality rather than Jesus. And I know you may be saying, well, Brian, that's a little legalistic. Maybe it is. But what, here's the thing, what it shows us. That, that simple, that small act of just disobeying the speed limit shows our pride. It, it, it's saying in that moment, I know I'm supposed to go the speed limit, but I don't want to, so therefore I'm not going to do it. It's, it's showing that, that, that our preferences is driving what we do over the law. Showing that we can't keep the law because we can't even keep the speed limit, a basic law. Because of that sin and that wickedness that's within us that gives us that pride to think, I'm above the speed limit. No, you're not. Maybe that didn't do it for you, so we can talk about murder. Anybody murder anybody in here? You don't have to tell me. We've all been angry, haven't we? We've all been angry. We've all had a temper. We've all thought to ourselves, man, life would just be better if that person went around. You know, and I read like things like Moses in, in, in uh, Exodus 2 where he sees this Egyptian man harming this, this Hebrew man, and so he goes in there and he strikes the Egyptian down and hides the body in the sand. And I'm like, can we just do that in church? Like, instead of all this forgiving people 70 times 7 thing that Jesus talks about, let's say you mess up, you're harming others, we just strike you down and we hide your body in the pond. <laughs> it's that feeling, though, and that thought that Jesus will say in Matthew 5 that even the thought of it is sin, because what is it doing? Even though we're not acting on it, it's revealing our hearts. So maybe I'm the only one that struggles with that. I don't know. I've got a temper. Maybe, you're, maybe you, you can drive the speed limit and you can get not, not get angry when people cut you off. Great. Let's go through the list then. Lying, coveting, idols, stealing. The point here is that you and I are guilty. We are all Guilty. The Jews and Gentiles are guilty. Brothers and sisters, we've got to hear that today. 
Because oftentimes we don't realize how guilty and how sinful we actually are. We look at the craziness of the world and we say, those people are bad, not us. And we fail to realize that we've all failed God's law. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And we all need to turn to Jesus. And that's what Peter's doing here. He's saying, brothers, we haven't done it. We can't do it. Our fathers couldn't do it. Their fathers couldn't do it. But there's good news. That God in his grace has done it for us in Christ. That Jesus has fulfilled all of the righteous requirements of the law. That he alone is our righteousness to stand before a holy God blameless. That he has taken the curse of sin upon himself in his death on the cross. And that he has defeated death and sin in his resurrection. Therefore there is nothing left for you to do. The gospel alone is Jesus. It's not you. The good news is that he has done it. It is not him plus something else. It is Jesus. And so after all this, Peter, he just kind of drops the mic. It says that the assembly is silenced in verse 12. And then Paul and Barmas step up and they begin to talk about all the things that God is doing through their ministry among the Gentiles. And then, like, we've just been reading about that all, all this, these past couple weeks. We've been seeing all these Gentiles come to know Jesus. And these churches established that have Gentiles in them. And yet, these men are like, no, 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 no. they got to become Jews first. And Paul and Barnabas and Peter are like, no, they don't. They're already saved. There's evidence of their salvation. The power of God is working in them to where now they are sharing their testimony and others are coming to know Jesus through them. Basically saying, hey, it's not man's decision whether or not God can save the Gentiles. God has spoken on the matter. Then we see in James, he steps up to the platform in verse 13. Let's pick it up there. It says, after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old." Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. And so James, the brother of Jesus, who is a prominent leader in the Jerusalem church, gives this address in which he puts this whole debate to rest. It's over. He settles everything, especially concerning salvation, by affirming the testimonies of Paul, Barnabas, and Peter. And here's the neat thing. He doesn't do it with his own opinion. He does it with the word of God. See, it's the word of God that he says agrees with these men's testimonies about the Gentiles. And so for James, the word of God is all the decisive truth that he needs. Completely settles this matter. And so what he does is he quotes the, he says that the prophets, so plural, more than one, agree, showing that these, these words that he quotes here in 16 and 17 are, are, are stuff that the prophets have all said to one degree or another. And so they're all teaching the same thing, even though it's a, it's a direct quote from Amos 9, verses 11 and 12. 
But this quote is referring to how God is rebuilding the tent of David, or in other words, he's restoring the line of David, which he does through Jesus as the Messiah. And then in that, uh, along with that, he's going to restore the remnant of mankind and all the Gentiles who are called by the name of God. And so what this is showing is that God has always intended to include the Gentiles. That God has always been working towards saving people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to himself. James is saying it is, God's not saving one singular ethnic group, but he's taking people from all nations to be his people as they desire to place their faith in Jesus. And if we look, brothers and sisters, through the whole counsel of God's word, from Genesis to Revelation, this is easily seen. And so because God's word is clear that both Jews and Gentiles can be saved by faith, in verse 19, James says that they should then not trouble the Gentiles with the demands of the Jewish law or circumcision. In other words, they win. And so they're to be free from those demands of the law as all are in Christ and that Jewish Christians need to recognize that. Which totally answers that first question that we've been talking about of, of salvation. But it brings up that other question of, okay, now that the Gentiles don't need to be circumcised and adhere to the law for salvation, how do we get along? And, and so what he does here, what James does, is he gives a solution in verses 19 through 21 as he calls the Gentiles to use their freedom not for themselves but for the good of their Jewish brothers and sisters. And he does this in four ways listed here in verse 20. He, he asked them first to be faithful to the one true God by not turning to idols or engaging in sexual immorality, things that are clearly sin issues here. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to say that the grace of God does not um, then allow you or compel us to a life of sin, but rather it compels us to a life of pursuing holiness in Jesus because he's our righteousness. And then, though, he asked that they would be sensitive to the issues of the ceremonial laws with regards to unclean animals and blood. And so he's encouraging the Gentile believers to, to recognize the rich historical family background that these Jewish brothers and sisters come from, and, and therefore to abstain from anything that might offend them or cause division in the church. So rather than flaunting their freedoms in the Jews' faces they would abstain and accommodate the sensitivities of their Jewish brothers and sisters out of love for them, a message that our country desperately needs to hear. And so in other words, if a Gentile has a, a Jewish brother or sister over for dinner, they would be mindful of their background and therefore mindful of what they serve for dinner. They're not going to just be chomping on bacon the whole time. As good as it is. If you don't like bacon... Something like Thanksgiving, I don't know. So, so James is not saying that there's things that we have to do to be saved, but rather he's saying, hey, hey, there's guidelines here for, for Jewish and Gentile people to be able to have fellowship with one another. He, he's trying to help us see to avoid uh, practices that could lead to breaking fellowship or could lead towards others uh, to sin or could hinder our witness of the gospel to those around us because our freedom isn't meant for those things. Paul addresses the same thing in Galatians 5 
verses 13 through 14. I encourage you to go read the whole book of Galatians this week. Uh, But this little part, it says, For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So there's plenty um, examples that I can, I can think of that would help us understand this at a deeper level, but probably the, the most uh, clearest modern-day illustration I can think of is the topic of alcohol and the church. Because this can be um, something that's very divisive in the church, because while some of us can enjoy and, and can drink alcohol because we have that freedom to do so biblically and we can enjoy a good wine or an old-fashioned or just a a good old Miller Lite on a hot day, there's others of us that that cannot enjoy that freedom for mainly one of three reasons. One is that one glass turns into two, that turns into three, turns into four, next thing you know the bottle's gone and you're going out find another bottle and so you have a problem with drunkenness which is sin. Or we can come from a background where we've experienced the abuse of alcohol. We ourselves have been abused in our family or or someone close to us. Or we haven't abused it and we, we haven't been affected by it. We may just not like the taste or we just think that it's not wise for us to engage in it. All very legitimate reasons to not engage in it. And so here at Saul Rock, see, we believe that the Bible teaches that there is nothing Nothing biblically sinful about alcohol in and of itself. Nor is there anything sinful about drinking it, yet everyone should use wisdom in this matter. And if they do drink, they should do it in moderation so that they will not be led to drunkenness and sin against God. I got that directly from our our elders document titled, What is Solid Rock's Views on Alcohol? That you can find today in the Connect class. We can get you a copy of that. I encourage everybody to go read it. It's a great, great read. And so I just want to Uh, give you a quote from that. It says, to conclude, alcohol in and of itself is not evil, nor is drinking alcohol inherently a sin. That being said, the Bible does provide the parameters of moderation and prudence for drinking alcohol, end quote. And so what we're saying is that while we affirm that you have every biblical right and freedom to drink alcohol, we also affirm that you should use wisdom in that freedom. Because there's some people that have decided that they don't even want to be around it. Totally legit. A very wise and mature decision, especially if they've struggled with it in the past. And so what are the rest of us to do in those instances? Do we just say, well, I've got the freedom, so you can just get over it? Or do we use prudence and wisdom and say, you know, this could hinder my relationship with this person. This could hinder my witness of the gospel with this person, which is my foremost concern over any Christian freedom I have. Or... This could lead them to sin. And I don't want to do any of those things. So out of love, respect, and service to my brother or sister, I'm going to choose not to use this freedom in that area with them. Because it could lead to divisiveness. And we don't want that. That's not what the freedoms are meant for. And so Paul has another helpful way of saying this in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 23 and 24. He says, all things are lawful. Some of y'all's translations say permissible, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And so what this tells me is that I need to be mindful of the things that I do in my life. 
So like if I have somebody over to my house for dinner, I'm not going to just assume that they're cool with alcohol. Therefore, I won't be serving it or drinking it myself until I get to know them. And and we've had those types of discussions. But I'm also not going to press those conversations just so I can use my freedom. And so this is one of the many examples we need to consider in our lives. I mean, you have the freedom to have a social media page, don't you? If you choose. Yet, what are you using that freedom for? Because many of us, we use it for divisiveness at times. You have the freedom to own and display historical memorabilia, but do you ever consider the offense that it could have on someone of a different race? Not that racism is a freedom like alcohol. Racism is a sin any way you put it, especially with what we see here in Acts 15. But because of the effects of our American history, there are certain things that we could easily offend others with. And therefore, we need to be mindful of those things. We don't need to be defensive about them. We need to be sensitive. And so there's so many other things we could talk about. The point of all this is, are you using your freedom for yourself or for the service of others because of the gospel? And so if we keep reading through Acts 15, we'll see in verses 22 through 29 that the Jerusalem church agrees with James, and they send this letter to the church back in Antioch with these statements of freedom in the gospel and to use our freedom for the good of one another. And so to close out today, let's pick back up in verse 30, and I want to see the response of the Gentile believers. So verse 30 and 31 says, So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And so how, like, how amazing is this? That the Gentile believer's response was not, I can't believe you said I'm free from all this, now you're giving me restrictions, what's up with that? But it was joy. It was joy. They're saying these restrictions are not burdensome, but we will gladly comply because the gospel is working in them. They know and they understand that as Jesus has laid down his freedom for our sake, we should find joy in laying down our freedom for the sake of others. This is how we come to issues that could be divisive in the church. This is what a Christian community relying upon the gospel looks like. They have this attitude of, I'm for you, I'm not against you. I want to serve you. I want to encourage you in the gospel. I'm not going to beat you down when you fall. I'm going to help pick you up. I'm going to build you up. Because of the gospel, we should constantly be laying down our freedoms for our brothers and sisters to encourage, love, and build one another up that we would look more and more like Jesus. And when we can't do that, when we lack this attitude of joy and love and grace, it reveals that we've just turned to a different gospel, even though there isn't one. It reveals that we have made everything about ourselves rather than the gospel. Whether you're putting unbiblical restrictions on others like they were here in Acts 15, like with circumcision, because you struggle with legalism, because you think your approval by God is found in your ability rather than the grace of Jesus, or you use your freedom for yourself rather than to serve the body of Christ, what you're showing is a selfish and sinful heart attitude that is contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're showing that you're being driven by some other mindset rather than grace in the Lord Jesus. 
Because, see, the freedom that the gospel brings about in us is not a license to sin, nor is it a license for our selfish desires, but it is an opportunity for us to love and serve one another. And a true understanding of the gospel is the cure to this selfish and narcissistic behavior we oftentimes operate in, knowing that that this service that we're doing, these works that we're doing for one another, do not merit us anything. It is simply the outcome or the effect of the gospel working in us. This is why my biggest encouragement I can give to you today from Acts 15 is you need to be reminded of the gospel. I need to be reminded of the gospel day in and day out. We need to know that there is no other gospel than faith alone and Christ alone by the grace of God alone. And that's what's happening here in Acts 15. That in the midst of opposition and in the midst of debate, do they say, oh, well, well, this gospel thing's not working out, so let's just go try this thing over here. No, they, they press into the gospel. They proclaim it. They, they let it shape and mold their lives and how they view salvation and then how that practically plays out amongst that community of faith. And so hear me today. It is the gospel alone that saves. It is the gospel alone that brings healing and unity And it is the gospel alone that is to be our hope. Let's pray. I just want to let everybody know today before we begin praying uh, that we have our prayer partners in the back. If the the Father has done something in your heart today or um, if you have just heard that you can have salvation through grace, that you don't have to do anything for that, then they would have love to get the honor to to pray with you. Um, And so please utilize them. We're gonna move into a time of reflection and uh, just feel the freedom to, to do what you will with that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. If not for grace, we would be lost. We would be continuing down a road that just leads towards uh, failure, leads towards death. Father, I pray for all of us today that we would take a hold of your grace. Father, we realize that we, we can't do anything to be able to obtain the law. We can't work our way into heaven. Father, it is by your grace alone. Pray for the person that may be uh, struggling, that may not know you, Father, may not have ever heard that message, Father, that you would be able to save them today. That they would place their faith in your grace that's found in Jesus. Father, give them the courage to talk with somebody, to let somebody know that they might start this beautiful process of the Christian life. For the rest of us, I pray that you would encourage us to see that we are free from the demands of the law. We are free in the gospel and that we would then use that freedom not for ourselves but for the love of one another that we would be able to proclaim your glory. It's in your name we pray, Father. Amen.